I want to invite Sean Ellis to the stage. Let's give him a hand for being here today. Sean, we're always very, very pleased to have you. It is a blessing beyond uh, expression, really, to have you here. And uh, we're so thankful. Sean, for those of you who don't know that, is a pastor of a church in Taiwan. It's called House of Blessing, I believe is the name of it. He's the lead pastor there. And uh, and so he's home for some needs that he's to take care of here in the States. And so uh, by being in Kentucky, we reached out to him to see if he would care to speak today. Let me say this also as I'm introducing him. The last song we sang this morning I think fits so well with what you see on the, on the wall behind me. Mm-hmm. And we are in a series. Uh, it's had a soft start because of... Uh, things that happened last week, and then just Stephen being out of town today and Sean being with us. It's had a soft start. But we are in a series called All In, and you're going to hear more specific things about it today. But we asked Sean, would you have a message that would fit with that? And he said, I absolutely do. So uh, his message today is part of that. Uh, we want to be a church that's all in for everything God wants for us. And there are some things that we need to press into right now, we believe, as pastors, and we'll be calling that forth in the days to come. But we pray that you'll have a heart to hear, uh, ears to hear, a heart to obey, a joy in your step. I believe God is on the move here, and I want to see his momentum pick up in my own heart. I want to see it collectively in all of our hearts, and may, may the Lord uh, speak to us strongly through Sean today. Uh, I think that's all I'm going to say about you because uh, this this brother is a deep Bible teacher and preacher, and uh, it's always my joy to sit under his leadership and his teaching. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Sean Ellis. Thank you for his ministry, his life, his family. I just pray, Father, that he'll have every freedom today. Open heaven over him and over us that he might preach this beautiful word of God. It is life to us. It's the marrow to our bones. And we want to hear it in its purest form. We want to be led by it, taught by it, and govern our lives by it. So, Father, help us as a church to be all in for Jesus. All in in these days. You're you're all around us doing uh, an outpouring of your spirit in this region and throughout this country, it's time. And we want to be caught up in the wind of God and the fire of God and all that you're doing. So bless our brother now as he comes to preach. Give him your anointing and holy unction. We receive him into this uh, pulpit today and let him have every authority to speak for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sean, thank you, my brother. Thank you. Well, normally when we are planning our uh, furlough trips back from the mission field, we plan way in advance and, you know, I communicate with uh, Philip and Stephen and the church and we kind of set up all these different ministry and sharing dates, but uh, this was a particular trip that we felt like the Lord really kind of stirred our hearts to make and to really kind of make plans very quickly and book the tickets and it kind of came together and so I appreciate Stephen and Philip with making space uh, for me to share this morning. And I believe that it's the Lord's timing because, of course, 
I had no idea, nobody could, that this particular trip, this timing of my trip would be at the same time of the revival that's happening at Asbury. Uh, Like most of your pastors, I graduated from Asbury Theological Seminary, and so, you know, we were just in that chapel, uh, I think this summer, because I was taking our fourth child, Kai, uh, to visit Asbury, and he's kind of, you know, praying and thinking about where to go in the future, and to see that same empty chapel when we were there, just full of not only these young people, and uh, people of all generation, but to see it full of the Holy Spirit uh, is a special blessing. And what you need to realize is now everything, of course, has changed globally because of social media. And so people in Taiwan already know about the Asbury revival. And in fact, they started messaging me about it, you know, sending me pictures. One of our elders is sitting there. He's praying. I see the laptop open. He's watching the live stream. And uh, of course, they know I'm from Kentucky. I mention it proudly often in my sermons there. And uh, so, yes, I'm getting more than fried chicken on this trip. Um, I'm getting a chance to really see what God is doing. And of course, every pastor wants that for their church. Every pastor wants revival to break out. And every missionary wants revival for the nation that God has sent them to serve in. And, um, you know, I was uh, thinking that, you know, missionaries, we spend a lot of time studying about revival. You know, we go back and we read about the historical revivals because we want to see that, of course, for the nations that God has sent us to. And I was thinking about the revival that happened in North Korea. And a lot of people would never even think about a revival happening in North Korea, what is today North Korea, but it did in 1903 to 1907. There was a huge revival that broke out. And when you read about the description of the revival, it's so many of the same exact things that we're seeing happening up at Asbury. There's just huge move of confession and repentance, you know, the Holy Spirit moving on people and them coming to the front and just confessing sin and getting right with the Lord, there is, uh, you know, this huge move of testimonies of people getting up and just sharing what the Lord has radically done in their lives and giving them uh, freedom over sins and addictions that had been over them for so many years. And then, of course, eventually in Korea, that revival led to many people giving their lives to Christ because it was a Buddhist Taoist religion at the time that the revival broke out. And of course, like all revivals, uh, it eventually ended uh, shortly in 1907. But the thing that's quite incredible is the fire that started there. Whatever happened in those Christians' lives must have changed something about how they would respond to pressure, how they would respond to persecution. Because all kinds of things happened in Korea after that. There was Japanese occupation. There was World War I. There was World War II. Then there was the Korean War, right? And yet all of those things happening did not crush the gospel. It did not stop God's plan of what he wanted to do in Korea. And so in what we consider South Korea, that's where, again, the church moved to when the nation was divided, um, it, it, it exploded, I mean, literally, in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, Christianity exploded in that nation. And a nation which, when that revival broke out, was probably less than 0.01% Christian. Today, South Korea, one out of every three South Koreans is a believer. I mean, when you think about that, it's staggering to go from basically under 1% 
And then just in the times that some of us have been alive, it has become one-third Christian. And not only is it one-third Christian, but I can tell you as a missionary, I've seen this uh, statistic to be true, that South Korea is the nation, on, it's number two on the list of sending the most missionaries. Even though size-wise, it's much smaller than the United States, which is number one, it is still now the number two missionary-sending nation in the world. So, so what happened? What, you know, what did God do that, um, again, the result of revival for Korea, and we're, of course, we're believing for North Korea still today, um, was this. And so uh, I've been in Taiwan for 13 years. So it's about 13 years. We've been in missions for about 29 years. And Taiwan, despite missionary after missionary going there since particularly the 1960s, it's still about 6% Christian. So we have not seen what South Korea has seen. It's much uh, more similar to Thailand with the, where the Rosses are serving or Japan where the ground has just been so hard that it's really radically going to take something like a Holy Spirit revival just to break those bondages. And so one of the things that w- we study not, is not only the history of revivals and, and uh, you know, how did revivals begin, but also kind of the, the cultural background of each people group. So, so what needed to break in that particular culture? So you become a student of revival, you become a student of culture. Um, and so you're always trying to learn more things about the culture. And definitely in 13 years, I have come to appreciate so many things about the culture of Taiwan. Um, and, you know, I could kind of go on and on and on about those. But I will have to say that after 13 years, there are some things that Taiwanese love that I have still been highly resistant to. I can't say as I love them, and I do my best to avoid them at all costs. Uh, one of those things um, is food, all right? Uh, one of the things that Taiwanese love to eat is called chodofu, okay? So dofu is kind of easy because we basically just use that same sound, tofu, right? But Chinese, dofu means bean curd, right? And then cho means stinky. So the name of this food that they love, it's like their hot dog, basically, right? It's like the national thing you got to eat is cho dofu. It's literally stinky tofu. And to call this tofu stinky is an insult to the word stinky, if you know what I'm saying. And I tried to ask my mom this morning, you know, because they visited Taiwan. You can literally smell this from blocks away. Like, there's the, they do them in outdoor stalls. Uh, I can't imagine what it would be like indoors. They do it in, in these outdoor stalls, and you can be blocks away. Yep, you know, there's a chodofu stand somewhere close. And I said, Mom, can you describe what did it smell like? We all agree it's stinky. But come on, there's got to be something that stinks that everybody's going to know about, and you say, okay, it smells like this. And my mom's example was it smells like a boy's locker room that has been closed up for 50 years and then reopened. So I don't know if that that helps you. Uh, For me, I have been sprayed by a skunk. Some of you might remember that amusing sermon from years and years ago. That's kind of what it smells like to me. Like basically, if you fried up some tofu, brought over a skunk and just, right, just sprayed some skunk on it. So it's bad. It's really bad, and I, in 13 years, have refused to eat it. I've never been in a situation where I've had to eat it, the Lord willing. 
And uh, it's so funny because we just had our Christmas outreach. We do an outreach every Christmas because Taiwanese love Christmas culture and they still think Jesus is Santa Claus. We're working on it. Um, and so one of the things that they wanted, we, we kind of set food stalls out in the parking lot and lights and, and did all this stuff. And, and uh, you know, they were t- planning out what we were going to eat. And, uh, and their plan was to have stinky tofu at the Christmas outreach. And I just said, absolutely not, right? Christmas cannot smell like stinky tofu. I'm, just, I'm drawing a line here. So um, just uh, uh, it's something that I have so far avoided. The other thing that Taiwanese culture loves, man, they love it, is karaoke. And so when you go to Taiwan, you'll see all of these places like Holiday Star and Party World, and you'll wonder, what are they? Are they restaurants? Are they bars? They're karaoke clubs. Like basically this whole thing inside is just all these private rooms, right, where you can um, do karaoke. And so it has the TV, it has all the microphones, and this is what they do. Like if someone's birthday or, you know, you want to celebrate, you go out, you rent a karaoke room, and start singing. Now, I can't sing. Anybody who stands near me in church, that's not a revelation for you. Um, So obviously, it doesn't have a lot of attraction for me, but it's just, I feel like a total dweeb anytime we've ever had to go to do these, right? These, These karaoke things. And they love it so much that, I mean, you can, again, here's the rooms that you can uh, reserve. They love it so much that now there's karaoke stalls. I am not kidding you. This is like a phone booth-sized kind of little contraption here. And when you go to the shopping malls, they have karaoke stalls. And you can see like four or five people crammed into a phone booth, basically, singing their hearts out in the middle of the shopping mall. Um, If that's not, you know, good enough for you, Um, And during COVID, of course, you know, what do you do? You can't go out and sing karaoke. It's okay. You can buy karaoke machines, have them installed in your homes. And a lot of Taiwanese, this is what they do for fun on the weekends. I can tell you because we live next to someone who had a very, very sophisticated and loud karaoke system. And it really doesn't matter if you can sing or not. That's the beautiful part, you know? You being able to sing in tune or remember all the words has nothing to do with their enjoyment of karaoke. So it, it's just everywhere. And um, I remember we, we just a couple of weeks ago had Chinese New Year. And that's like Taiwan's Christmas, right? Uh, that's their biggest holiday of the year. People get a week off. And so that we thought, you know, normally this is a time when all the Taiwanese are gone. So like, it's like our church is just empty. It's like the beginning of hunting season in Montana, right? Church is just out. And you're like, where is everybody? It's like elk season. So that's like us, Chinese New Year. Usually everybody's gone, so it's just a couple of foreigners at church. But this year, there were two Sundays with Chinese New Year. So the second Sunday, most people were back. So we thought, this is it. This is our one chance to do a big outreach and bring people into the church and do a Christian-style, you know, uh, Chinese New Year celebration, redeem it for Christ. And so we're planning it out, and they're like, okay, what do you know, Chinese love to do, Chinese New Year? Well, you know, of course, they love to eat. So we're like, okay, well, we'll have lots of food, and we'll just do table style, and, and uh, you know, kind of went down the list, and they're like, okay, what do they love to do? And they're like, karaoke. And I'm like, no way. There is no, this is a church of God, right? We are not doing karaoke 
in the church of God while I am there. And then, so they kept working on me and they were like, well, you know, I was like, okay, well, what if you just did it like upstairs in a soundproof room that we could shut all the doors? And they're like, no, you've got to have it in the sanctuary while we eat. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, this is a nightmare. And so I had to, you know, basically it all came to me, this decision, what do I do? And, and, and as I'm thinking about this, we're studying through the letter of First Peter. That's the sermon series that, that we're in right now. We're in about in chapter 3. And I was thinking through Peter's life and the challenges that Peter faced as God called him to be uh, basically, you know, a herald of the gospel, uh, one of his disciples, one of the ones who was going to go out to all these villages uh, and eventually the nations and, and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so this morning, we're going to just talk for just a minute about that journey that, that Peter had to take in order for God to get him where he wanted him to be as far as sharing the gospel and bringing revival and understanding other people's cultures. Now, young Peter, young Peter, the Bible gives us at least enough detail about his life to kind of get a basic image of who he was. He must have grown up in a very orthodox conservative Jewish family. How do we know that? Acts chapter 10. Um, We're going to talk about it in a minute, but Peter makes a statement to God. He says, God, in my whole life, I have never eaten anything unclean. And, And what he's talking about is in Leviticus chapter 11, of course, God gave the Jews food laws. So this is what you can eat. This is what you cannot eat. And it's a very extensive list. And, uh, and Peter's basically able to say at this time in his life, God, I've, I've never broken that law. I mean, that's challenging, especially when one of the meat they can't eat is pork, and that was the dominant main meat that people ate in the first century when he was alive. It was the easiest to get, the most available. And so he's like, I have taken the law so seriously, I've never broken it. And you get that sense of Peter's passion when you read the Gospel of John And you realize that before he was Jesus' disciple, he was John's disciple. We kind of forget that because John's the only gospel that tells us a little bit more about John's ministry before he baptized Jesus. And it mentions that um, Peter is there. He's one of his disciples along with his brother Andrew and also along with two other brothers, James and John, who would go on to be Jesus' disciples as well. So what was it in Peter? Basically, it was like he heard there was an Asbury-like revival happening at the Jordan. And when you read about what John was preaching and what was happening at the Jordan, that's exactly what it was. People were getting a baptism as a confession of sins. It was a baptism of repentance. And so people were coming out to that, that river, the River Jordan. They were confessing their sins. They were getting right with their God and coming back to his covenant law. And John was basically telling them to go out and live changed lives when you get out of this water. And so Peter and all of his, you know, his brother and their two friends that they were actually in a fishing business with as well, James and John, they were like, we're going to make a trip. Like, we're going to Wilmore. But for them, that was the Jordan, which is also out in the middle of nowhere. I don't know if there's a connection there, you know, revivals out in the middle of nowhere. And so, um, so they, they go to this river. They, they get, I'm guessing, baptized themselves. They become disciples. They start traveling down there whenever they're not fishing. And it's there that they're going to run into Jesus when he comes to be, uh, comes to be baptized. 
So eventually, of course, they go back up to uh, the Galilee area, and they're doing their fishing. And that's where the other Gospels pick up the story. That's when they say Jesus then comes back. He's already met them at the revival of the Jordan, comes back, and of course, he calls them to be his followers. And this is in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, probably familiar to most of you. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, uh, who is Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen, a very fisherman-like activity. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. And when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So Jesus' challenge uh, to Peter and these other fishermen was, come and I will make you fisher of people, or an older translation, I will make you a fisher of men. So basically, he was going to be following up that revival at the Jordan. I mean, this is what's happening. Now, Jesus is going to gather this group of disciples, and he's going to go village to village. Right? This is what we're always praying for. Lord, let it not just happen at a river out in the middle of nowhere, but let it go to Capernaum, and, and let it go to Bethsaida, and then eventually let it get into the capital. Let's have this revival hit Jerusalem. And that's going to be a tough nut to crack, but that's where it's got to go. So they're going to be going, bringing revival from village to village and being fisher of men. But I, even though the text does not say this, based on what we can tell about Peter from his early life, and based on what we can tell about Peter and the disciples after this moment, I bet he made an assumption here. I bet when Jesus said, I will make you fisher of men, what Peter was thinking is, I will make you a fisher of Jewish men. That he just basically would have made that assumption that that's who the Jewish Messiah is here for. That is the target of the revival. That's who we are trying to reach, are the Jews. And so I'm going, he's going to teach me how to go out and to fish for Jewish men. And when you go through the rest of the Gospels, it starts to fall in together in certain stories. One of my favorite is in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Jesus is going village to village, but then Jesus gets to this area called Samaria. And the Samaritans were a people group uh, that had been created by a mix of Jews and Gentiles in the Old Testament times. So if there is nothing worse uh, than a Gentile, it's this mix. It's like an abomination to them that the bloodlines of the Jews have been mixed together with the Gentiles. So the Jews hated Gentiles, but they really, really hated the Samaritans. And you've you got to understand that this time, like Peter, they have nothing to do with each other. They, no association because Gentiles are unclean. And if you have contact with them, you are going to be spiritually contaminated. So, of course, if that's the way you view a people group, then, yeah, you're you're going to have basically what we would call today racist thoughts. You know, Jews hated Gentiles, Gentiles hated Jews. There was racism going on between them for hundreds of years. And, and so they get to this Samaritan village, and Jesus is like, we're going to go in. And you can imagine Peter and the disciples are not happy about this at all. They do not want to go into this Samaritan village. They do not want to become unclean but it's Jesus, and he's doing crazy miracles, so they follow him. 
And of course, what happens is exactly what they expected. The Samaritans reject the gospel. And so they leave the Samaritan village, you know, shake the dust off their feet. And then, (laughs) it's so funny, James and John, they turn to Jesus. And what do they say? Jesus, do you want us to call fire down on these Samaritans? Wow, right? Doesn't that tell us so much about what's going on in their hearts? Like Jesus, he must have been so frustrated. Like he's doing the Sermon on the Mount and other stuff, and he's like, turn the other cheek. If someone slaps you, give them the other cheek. Let them slap that one. And here's his disciples. They're like, get them, Jesus. Turn them into fried chicken, you know? And Jesus is like, you're not getting this forgiveness message at all, right? But that tells you, like, they were ready to turn a whole village of women and men and little kids and old people into a Sodom and Gomorrah-like place. Just kill them all. Like, that's, that, that definitely reveals how much they hated the Gentiles. And Jesus just keeps ministering to Gentiles and Samaritans, and he keeps telling parables like when you, you understand the background, these parables make more sense. Like the good Samaritan, like that's an oxymoron to a Jew. You know what I mean? He, there is no such thing as a good Samaritan unless he's dead. So is that what you mean, Jesus? The good dead Samaritan? He's like, no, he's the guy who actually shows love to the man who has been attacked by the thief. He's the only one. And the other Jews wouldn't do that. It makes sense when you read the prodigal son. Right? And, the, and when you really read it with that lens and looking back and the crowd that he's telling it in, he's talking about these, the fact that he's got this other, the other fold of sheep. He keeps telling them, I have these other sheep, I'm going to bring them in. And, and no matter how he tells them, whether it's in a parable or directly or by example of reaching out to them, the, the disciples just kept resisting Jesus's message that they needed to reach out to the Gentile people. Now, eventually, of course, uh, Jesus gives them the Great Commission after he rises from the dead. Matthew chapter 28, he says, I want you to go, and what is the rest of that? I want you to go and make disciples of who? He's like, I'm going to make it clear to you. I made a mistake before. I said fisher of men, and you could interpret that differently. This time I'm going to be so clear, I'm going to use the word nations, <laughs> right? which is the same word in Greek, ethnos, that we use for Gentiles, right? So he basically tells them, go out, make disciples of the Gentiles, right? Clearly uh, uh, enunciating it so they don't uh, get this mixed up uh, in their brain. In Acts chapter one, he tells them the same thing. He's like, okay, I'm gonna make it clear. I think I've made it clear before, but this time I'll give you some geographical information in Acts 1.8. I want you to go and be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they're like, yes, with the Jews. Judea, Yes, the Jews. Samaria, eh, right? And that was the last part. The last part is to the ends of the earth, right? That's Gentile land. Jesus, like, I've given them a map. I've told them exactly who they're supposed to reaching. Uh, They got it, right? But then you keep reading in Acts. Acts chapter 1, they're still in Jerusalem. Chapter 2, still in Jerusalem. Chapter 3, Jerusalem. Chapter 4, still in Jerusalem. 5, Jerusalem. 6, Jerusalem. Now they're arguing with other Jews, got Greek Jews and Hebrew Jews arguing, so still just ministering to the Jews. Chapter 7, still in Jerusalem. (laughs) Jesus is like, hello. (laughs) What are they not getting? And all the way up through chapter 8, the only witness we have of someone obeying Jesus' great commission is not one of the 12 disciples, 
It's not Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, any of those other guys we know nothing about, Thaddeus, right? It is this new guy. It's Philip. Philip's the only one in Acts chapter 8 who goes out and he witnesses to an Ethiopian eunuch. Okay? That's about as Gentile as you're going to get. He's an Ethiopian. He's a eunuch. The reason that people were made eunuchs back then was either because they worked in the king's harem or it was because they served in a, a temple of a goddess and turned themselves into a eunuch to do that. And then he also was the one who finally went to the Samaritans. And it's only after he has started a revival amongst the Samaritans that the early church leader in Jerusalem are like, all right, I guess we'll go up there. And they drag Peter and the guys up there, and they're like, yeah, we bless it. Let's get back down. Let's get out of here. So finally, God basically intervenes at this point. God's like, I'm going to have to just take matters in my own hands here, and I'm going to do two big things. The first thing, chapter 9, I am going to take one of the most Gentile-hating men on the face of the planet called Saul, and I'm going to make him my emissary to the Gentiles. Say what? <laughs> God, can you just pick someone who kind of likes Gentiles? <laughs> you know? Why are you going to pick a Pharisee who absolutely would have never had anything to do with a Gentile and send him? But that's what he does. The second thing that he does is with Peter. And with Peter, he, uh, he reaches out to him. So they come a long way, right, from their time there. And with Peter, he starts out by giving him a prophetic vision. And in this prophetic vision, there's kind of like this sheet that's coming down from heaven. And inside the sheet, there's all of these unclean animals. It's all these things, pigs and, you know, I don't know, buzzards and, I don't know, shellfish. They're all these things that he would have never eaten. They're impure to him. They're unclean. And Jesus basically says to him, God's going to make them all clean. And what God makes clean, you cannot call unclean anymore. And Peter's probably thinking, woohoo, bacon, right? But God takes it a little bit further. He's like, yes, the food laws are done for the early church, but there's something deeper in the meaning of this vision. And that's because just a few moments later, gets this knock on the door, right? And it's the servants of a Roman Gentile named Cornelius. So he's Roman, he's a Gentile, he was a centurion. It's like, again, the grossest of the gross to a Jew. Because he's not just a Gentile, he's a Roman. And he's not just a Roman, he's a Roman military officer. These are the oppressors. (laughs) And Peter understands, thankfully, that that vision is for more than just making food clean. It's that God is like, I told you to go and make disciples of the nations, of the Gentiles. Now I just got to kind of put my foot on you and just give you the left foot of fellowship out the door. You're going. And so Peter does, right? He goes to the door, and I think it's so funny what he says, right? It says in chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, while talking with him, talking to Cornelius and the people, Peter went inside and he found a large gathering of people. So all these people have gathered together in this Roman centurion's house to hear what Peter's going to share. He says, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Uh, may I ask why you sent for me? 
<laughs> just clueless, right? So a uh, couple of things interesting, I think, about what Peter says. Um, he, he says, you know it's against our law, okay? Our law, the Jews' law. But you need to know that there's nowhere in the Old Testament where God says you can't associate with a Gentile or you can't talk to a Gentile or you can't visit a Gentile. He just says in the Old Testament, just don't intermarry because at that point they were all idol worshipers and the Lord knew what influence that was going to have on them. But they have taken it and they've added their own laws. This is the, what we call the oral tradition of the Jews. And so they had this law that basically we just don't talk to them, we don't associate with them, we don't visit them, period. I can imagine that this was probably the very first time Peter had ever stepped foot in a Gentile's home. I mean, think about that. Like a whole race of people uh, that are all around you. You've grown up around them. They were all in the Galilee. He's been all around them. There's, they live in Jerusalem. They control it. And yet, this is the very first time in his life that he stepped foot into a Gentile's home. Like, I can imagine that feeling he had when he got to that doorstep, like, ah, ah, right? <laughs> it took him forever. Walked back and forth, and right? Finally, just like, oh, I feel so gross. I'm dirty, right? No purification jars to wash himself off with because it's a Gentile's home. Um, so, so he, right? It's like God just has to shove him in here to do this. And of course, when you read the rest of the story, it's like, again, the Holy Spirit just shows up. It's like the revival in Korea. It's like the revival at Asbury. The Holy Spirit just shows up and Peter doesn't even get to finish his sermon. I wonder if he thought, this is so rude. Like I worked really hard to prepare the gospel sermon and right in the middle of it, the Holy Spirit just, right? Sermon's over. (laughs) And people start speaking in tongues and prophesying. And, and Peter finally gets it. He finally says, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of our God is come into these Gentiles and made it their home, right? So something, God has made it so clear to him finally that God wants him to reach out to the Gentiles, to preach the gospel, that he has plans of how he's going to use the Gentiles And he even goes back to the mother church in Jerusalem, and he reports to all the leadership. He does this report twice. Acts chapter 11 does it again in Acts chapter 15. He's like, I know that God is cleansing the Gentiles. He gave me a vision. He poured the Holy Spirit out on these uh, Romans. So I I know that I know. And now we think, okay, he's got it, right? No more reminders, No more updates, right? Peter has got it. He is going to get out there. He's going to start preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He's not going to go back to his old culture. And then we get to uh, the book of Galatians. Galatians is written probably shortly after all this stuff just happened. You know, we, we think maybe around 49 AD, so maybe right before chapter 15 of Acts. So maybe it's been a year or a couple of years, but not very long after Peter's vision and the thing that happened with Cornelius. And Paul is writing to a church in Galatia, churches in Galatia, that are being attacked by false teachers. And the false teachers are telling the Galatians, Jesus and faith is not enough. You can't just believe in Jesus and be saved. It's Jesus plus the law. 
and specifically the law of circumcision. But you know, the whole package comes with that. It's circumcision, it's the food laws, it's the holy days. Like you got to do the whole meal deal or you can't be saved. You won't go to heaven. And so Paul is just, you know, he is so angry. He's like, if anybody preaches you a different gospel than the gospel of faith, let them be accursed. So he's, he's ticked off. And as he's doing this, he wants to bring up an example in kind of in his argument. And he brings up an example of something that just happened in the city of Antioch. Now, Antioch uh, was the city that is Paul's sending church. They're like his living waters for me. They're the ones who set him and Barnabas aside, send them out on their missionary journeys. God did an amazing work in Antioch. It's the first place that people were called Christians. Up until this time, they were just the followers of the way or followers of Jesus of Nazareth. So significant place. And one of the reasons it's significant in Antioch is because it's one of the places that I think they started to reach out, not only to Greek Jews, but also to Gentiles. So it was the perfect church to send Paul out on his mission to the Gentiles. So Peter is up here visiting the church, and Paul says this happened. Now, just so you know, Kephas, Kephas is Aramaic for rock, Peter's name, rock. Uh, Peter is the Greek version of it, so don't get confused. When you see Kephas, it means Peter. So when Kephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, brother of Jesus, the early church leader, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephas in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, ouch, and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So you get the picture. Peter is up, he's visiting Antioch. A lot of the church of Antioch were Gentile believers. He's going into their homes like he went into Cornelius's. You know, he's sharing the gospel. He's doing discipleship. He's reaching out to them. And then this certain group, right, come from the mother church in Jerusalem, come from the brother of Jesus, James himself. And they start putting pressure on all of the Jews. Like, you can't do that. You can't go into a Gentile's home. That's against our law. And so all this pressure from the circumcision group, that's definitely a group most people would not want to join, but, right, and, and they're like, he, he pulls back. He, he's like, he stops going into the Gentiles' homes. And not only him, but Barnabas. I'm like, come on, the son of encouragement too, right? He pulls back. And they all just stopped doing it. And Paul had to confront him in front of everyone, rebuked him. I mean, this is Peter, He's the rock on which the church is going to be built. He's one of the original 12. And Paul is rebuking him to his face in front of the entire church of Antioch. Ouch. Why did Paul do that? Because he knew the damage it was doing to the gospel. If Peter starts doing this and Barnabas starts doing this, and how are the Gentiles going to feel about that? And what's it going to do to them understanding the gospel of grace and mercy and there is no male or female or slave nor free or Jew or Gentile? So basically, Paul's like, that's why I'm so angry. That's why I will rebuke Peter himself in front of the whole church. 
And uh, the happy news I think I can deliver as we teach First Peter and read it is that he did repent. First Peter is the evidence that eventually Peter repented. Why do I say that? Because First Peter, when you read chapter 1, verse 1, is written to this whole area that today is Turkey. But back then it was an area called Asia Minor. And it was full of Gentiles. So we don't know exactly when. Acts doesn't record it. But at some point, Peter went up with the gospel. And, and maybe it was after this. He went up, went through the whole northern area of modern-day Turkey and just planted church after church full of Gentiles. And when you read about the issues in First Peter, they're Gentile issues. They're not Jewish issues for the most part. So, but how strong was that culture on Peter? That even after everything experienced with Jesus, everything, the parables, the ministry, and then everything he'd heard from the Great Commission and everything that he'd experienced in the early church and then the vision and then Cornelius and all it took was a couple of people going, hey, man, you can't do that, man. You, you can't go into those Gentiles' homes. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Oh, okay, I'll stop doing that. Like how strong is it? Like our old tendencies, our old habits, the way that we think we should worship God, the way that we think God relates to us, the way that we think that our religion should be experienced and taught gets so caught up with that old culture and the old way of doing it that it just kept coming back on Peter and these early Jewish disciples. And, and so uh, what, what's the point of this? The point is, that for me, as a missionary, I understand Peter's pain. That's what I'm saying. Uh, I understand what it's like to go and to go to a totally different culture than your own, like Taiwan, where the Chinese culture is, is often radically different from Western culture. The language is different. And then to start and try to figure out, like, how do I reach these people for Christ? How do I disciple these people? What, you know, what, what, how do we do church? And is there ways that we've been doing church always, uh, you know, growing up in the West that's just not going to work as effectively here amongst the Taiwanese? And so it's hard, right? It's trial and error and 13 years of uh, really trying to learn and grow and, you know, talk to uh, our Taiwanese brothers and sisters and our, our Taiwanese pastor. So I know what it's like to be young Peter. I was once young in a universe far, far away. And um, yeah, you, you learn things like uh, you really can't use Christian jargon. It's not just a language translation thing. Like when you say, oh, uh, somebody get up. We, we, we have a praise report this morning. And you're like, praise report? What's a praise report? Is that a report about praise? Like, is that a report about worship, how the worship leader did, or whether you like that song or not? I mean, what is it? But you just throw it out there, and we're like, I know what a praise report is. Like, let's turn to the Word of God. Um, what, what word? Is it just one word? Is it multiple words? Like, what is the Word of God? We just, we just use all of this Christian jargon, and we're quite comfortable, but imagine someone coming in with no Christian background whatsoever, and like the little Google Translate's not helping them out. Because it's not a Mandarin to English problem. It's like, as Christians, we develop all our little language. And if you're not part of our little club, you don't know what we're saying. And so you just are the outsider, right? You have no idea what's going on. It just sounds weird, and so you just pull out, pull back. Uh, foundational beliefs. 
I remember the first time, uh, this actually was someone from Thailand, and I'm sharing the gospel with them and discipling them, and they're like, so Christians worship uh, multiple gods just like us. I'm like, no, 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 we're just, just one God. He's like, no, no, I've, I've read enough of the Bible now. Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, three gods. I'm like, no, 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 it's three persons, one substance. And he just looked at me like, what are you talking about? Like, that's the lamest, like, you totally are worshiping three gods and you just don't want to admit it because you want to be different from everybody else who worships multiple gods. And then you try to explain it. And sometimes those little lame analogies we use with kids, you know, it's like the apple skin and then the meat of the apple and the apple core. And they're like, it's still three different things, you know? Um, and, And so you realize, oh my goodness, what passages in the Bible do I even take them to? How do I explain that we are not polytheistic? I don't know. I got to go back. I got to think through this. Stuff like baptism. It's weird. So I came to this group of Christians. They were meeting. Then they went out in the parking lot, and they had a kiddie pool, an inflatable kiddie pool full of water. And then at a certain point, they took some poor person, and they shoved him into the water, and I thought they were going to drown him. But then, you know, thank goodness he could hold his breath, and then they brought him back out, and then they, like, all clapped. What? (laughs) What does that mean? What, that's the weirdest kind of cult activity I've ever heard of. <laughs> so it, you, you have to stop and think, like, we have to explain it. Why are we doing this? And what does the water mean? And how is it symbolic of your new life in Christ? It's, it's about your intentionality with ministry and services. It's, it's, again, thinking through where do we need to go to get to the people? Is it to the college campus? Is it by teaching English? Is it handing out, you know, clothing and food? Is it by having kids programs? Do we, can we have it here at this building? Will they ever come here or do we need to go out, right? Uh, it, it's figuring out, it's being very intentional about, and not just saying, well, this is what we like to do. This is what we've always done as a church to reach people with evangelism and the gospel. We just can't do that. You gotta always be learning, growing, changing. And when it comes to our classes, the same thing. We all love deep Bible studies where we can get into the book of Revelation and debate our views on that with other mature believers. But you drop a new believer in that and they're on Mars. I mean, Revelation, good Lord, they don't even understand the basics of Christianity. So that means you've got to design a course for new believers. You've got to take time and think, okay, we need to make sure we always have a class for seekers. We always have a class for new believers. We're putting it up on the thing. Like after the service, you, you can just come and we can just talk about some basic questions of the gospel. Like we have to have stuff. It's not that we don't have the deep Bible study and we don't disciple mature believers, but we've got to have the other. It's not an either or, it's a both and, but you've got to be intentional. You've got to just be pushing for that and saying, okay, maybe I don't want to teach the new believer class again because it feels like the ABCs, the basics, the milk, but this is what they need, you know? And, it, and it's really about wanting them to come into the fullness of Christ. And of course, it's always about being relational, that if people don't feel like we care about them, it's not going to matter what classes we offer. It's not going to matter if we're using Christian jargon or not. Like, they want to know we actually care about them. And to do that, you just got to spend time with people. You got to listen to their stories. You've got to visit them in the hospital. You've got to maybe give them a ride when they need a ride to work, when their scooter is broken down. Like, whatever that is, right? You've just got to always be relational with people. But if we do that, right, 
then we're going to be following in the footsteps of Paul. Why did Paul and Peter go through all of this stuff? It's because of this. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 21. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. And, and you get that phrase, right? Throughout that whole thing, he just keeps saying to win, to win, to win. I will do whatever I need to do. Now, that's not compromising the truth of God's word. We saw that in Galatians. Somebody messes with the truth, the gospel, the truth of salvation. He's not messing around. He's not playing around with that. He'll rebuke. He'll write letters. He'll do whatever he needs to do. But as far as cultural stuff, as far as what kind of classes he offers or what, how he does his sermons or just things that are changeable, that are the gift wrapping, he's like, I'll do whatever because my heart is to win people to Christ, period. That's, the, that's what I get up in the morning for. That's what drives me. That's what inspires me. That's what determines my church strategy and my mission strategy is win people to Christ, win, 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 win. And of course, in sports, we Americans, we love our sports and just watched, got to watch UK play basketball in Kentucky, not in the middle of the night like I do in Taiwan. Play to win, play to win. Like I wouldn't want to be, you know, watching them and them say, well, we just want to be nice guys. You know, we don't really care if we win or not, right? They play to win. And as Christians, Paul says, that's our mentality. And if we play to win, there's going to be fruit. You know, did we really know anything about starting college ministries? N- n- no, we didn't. But we found out the college students really wanted to learn English, and so we started English clubs at the local campuses. And as we're doing these uh, English clubs, meet this young man named Jay. And Jay's super smart kid. He was like 26, wanted to be an, uh, a pilot, and he had really rejected God and rejected religion. He just didn't think it made sense. It didn't hold any water to him intellectually. But eventually, over time and relationship, he came to believe in the gospel. Now he's married to Nina, who is a South Korean that he met on a short-term missions outreach. He is at seminary training to be our next bilingual pastor, right? And, and that took time, right? That, that didn't just happen overnight, but it all started with us just going to a college campus and teaching English. And we didn't always know what we were doing with that either, Right? Just English discussion, that's all we can promise you. Uh, maybe not correct English grammar, but discussion we can do. Right? And they showed up. That same ministry is where Andy became uh, a believer. And Andy had come up in a very abusive household, uh, physically violent father, and just, just a horrible background. And yet he began to see the light of God's love and his acceptance through our relationship with him. He became a Christian. Now he's married to Charity who was there as a missionary from the United States, and they just finished their campus crusade training. So they are going to be full-time campus crusade missionaries uh, in Taiwan. Uh, Our services, you know, oh, no, don't make me change my service. I like to have it the same way. I got my four songs set, then we have announcements, and then we have a 45-minute, or if it's Sean, one-hour sermon, right? 
that's just the, that's the way we got to do church, and we got to sit in rows. And, and I got my row that I sit in. You know, when I sat down this morning, I'm like, oops, I hope I didn't sit in somebody's seat like I'm going to cause them to, like, stumble. It's right. We just have ways that we want to do church, but we kind of threw all that out, and we said, let's start a new service that we think will be the best to reach the lost in Taiwan. So we did an afternoon service. You can have church in the afternoon. You're still saved. We didn't have chairs. We had tables. Everybody sat at tables. It wasn't just all up front. It was all interactive for the most part. Maybe we'd sing a couple of songs to start, and then we'd have discussion questions, and people would talk about it, and then there'd be some teaching from the front for 10 minutes, then they would talk some more, then they would do a board game or something like that, and then we'd have food. Like, it was just a totally different table fellowship style. We didn't know what we were doing. It was trial and error. But out of that service uh, came a young woman named Emily. And uh, Emily came, and she said, I am here to learn English. Don't talk to me about Jesus. Don't talk to me about your religious mumbo jumbo. I just want English, and so I'm just saying it up front, right? A year later, she's baptized. So it, it happens, right? Just over time, hearing the truth of the gospel and in being relationship. Emily just finished her YWAM training, Youth with a Mission, my old missions organization, and she's praying about where God wants her to go. She's praying about what nation she wants, uh, God wants her to go to, um, You've got uh, Da Chung. Uh, when Da Chung joined us, he said, I, you know, I just want to let you guys know, I, I identify as gay. I'm living with my boyfriend. Um, but obviously, he had like a, a hole in his heart. He had something where he just knew that he wasn't experiencing love or acceptance. His parents had really uh, had not raised him well. And so just kind of over time, he became a believer in Jesus Christ to the point where he... Uh, kind of walked away from his old lifestyle. He's living a celibate life, moved out of his apartment, and then we got to baptize him out in the ocean there beside Taichung, and now he's helping us start our very first dance ministry. And Taiwanese also love dance. They love karaoke, but they also love dance. And so, you know, we had a dance at our Christmas uh, outreach. We have dance coming up at our Easter outreach, and he's helping us put that together. And, you know, out of these four people, only one of them had any background in Christianity whatsoever. Only Jay knew anything about the gospel. The other three, zip, zero, zilch, nada. And so what does this have to do with you at Living Waters, right? Well, for me, it uh, eventually forced me at Chinese New Year to say, okay, we will have karaoke. And they loved it. Like, it was people's favorite service. We couldn't get them to leave, literally. The same people that, like, can you share your testimony? Oh, I could never share my testimony. I'm too shy. I can't be in front of people. Give them a microphone and some music, and it's New York, New York, right? It's like, wow. I guess we just need you to sing your testimony. Um, And people said it was like one of their favorite services. We had over 220 people come and got a clear presentation of the gospel, right? And, and basically what it means for me, if I'm really here to play to win, then I might have to have Chodofu Christmas. It pains me to say it, and I, I don't really want to say it where it's recorded and could be used against me in a court of law, but I will have a Chodofu Christmas if it'll lead people to Christ. And, and that, I feel like, is God's question to you, Living Waters Church, this morning. You know, just because you are not overseas, 
right? Just because you are, are not a missionary in a foreign land. Uh, the, the lost, the unchurched that God wants you to reach in this community have just as little probably clue about the Bible as the people I'm reaching. It's just worse because they think they know. They think they know what Christianity is about. They think they know what you do here in the church. You know, but it's the same thing. It's that, it's that same thing where you've got to think through, again, all the parts. You know, when a new believer comes in or a seeker comes in, you've got to think through, all, you know, do we have classes? Do we have services that really fit them? Do, are we prepared to explain our foundational beliefs? Uh, are, are we willing to kind of like have our, you know, translate on and not use all the Christian jargon? We're, you know, what are we willing to change? about how we do the gift wrapping, how we do the services, how we do the ministry, all because we're playing to win. I, I, I think that's what Jesus is asking us. And if revival does spread, then we've got to be ready. Because right? revival, right, it's just the Kickstarter. It's the opening. And, and then there's all the follow-up, like what happened in Korea. That's the long process of discipleship, of training for ministry, of helping people find their giftings and callings. Right? That, that's what should go after the revival. So we need to be ready. And maybe we feel like we're already behind because of what's happening in Wilmore. But, but I, I just think we, that's what drives us play to win. So uh, I, I want to bring us to a close. And if the worship team wants to come up and just, you know, prepare to kind of like help us to marinate in this a little bit. I know we're running a little bit later. And so I'll let Philip, uh, come in and close us in just a moment. But I, I just want to pray for us because change is so hard. I mean, I experience that on a daily basis. And, you know, being back in the United States, it's like, oh, I can talk easily again. I can reach people easily again. I can explain the gospel easily again. But, you, you know, it, it really, it, it, you know, it, it's just what are we willing to do in order for someone to become a Christian? That, that's really what it's all about. And even if it's painful, Lord, we say, have your way. So let me pray. So Father God, as, uh, uh, we rejoice at the revival that's happening up in Wilmore. We rejoice at what's happening at Asbury. God, we want to see that here. We want to see that in every church. And I know that Living Waters wants to see that here and wants to see it in Frankfurt, wants to see it in Shelbyville and in Lawrenceburg and in Baghdad and all the places, the smallest village to the biggest city. And God, for that to happen, God, we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared to receive these people. We need to be prepared to disciple, to make disciples of all nations. And God, we know that it's not the same old Kentucky anymore, that there literally are people from all over the world now here. And so we want to lay aside the things that don't matter. We need to lay aside things like food or, or the style of music we want. And, and as Julia sang this morning, we need to come back to the heart of worship. We need to come back to the heart of the gospel, which is to win souls for Christ, to change their eternal destiny. To, to, to bring them into a relationship with their Father and their Maker so that they can have forgiveness and eternal life. We thank you for that, God. I just pray you'd work in our hearts. And if any uh, need to come forward during this time of worship and pray over this area or pray for anything else, the, 
The prayer team is up here. And God, we know uh, the river is here. Your spirit is here. Thank you, Jesus. I thank you. Thank you for this word today. Sean, I believe we need to change our sign on the wall here. It needs to say, all in to win. That's what we're about. And Sean has hit this right on the head of the nail this morning. This is exactly where we're going. Is We have got to be all in. I, I remember years ago I, when I was a young teenager... Just got into the scouts, and we had done a five-mile hike up into the Smokies. Uh, I'm from Tennessee, by the way. Don't bring that up for that game yesterday. But we'd gone up into the Smokies, and I remember getting to a place where there was a great big rock, and there was a white line on that rock. And on this side of the rock, I was in North Carolina. On this side of the rock, I was in Tennessee. And I thought that was so cool to stand up on the rock and stand in two states at one time. God is saying to you and to me, it's time to decide. Get into one state. Take your foot out of the other side of that line and get over into my kingdom into what I've called you to do as a church, what I've called you to do as a person, as an individual, what I've called you to do as a family, what I've called you to do and be as a, as a believer. Get all in. All in one or the other. And if you'll go in and get all in in the kingdom, in my work, in my callings, my activity for you, my lifestyle for you, I will change your world. And we can't let stinky tofu or, or some other cultural issue or whatever to keep us from be, being all in. I want you to stand to your feet right now. Would you do that? I'd like to put up that prayer line call on the screen right now, David, if you would. We've got a prayer line that we have a trained person to sit and answer that phone right now. If you want to call and, and, and receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you've been touched today by the power of God, by the gospel message of Jesus Christ. You want to be a believer. You want your life to change. It's time for you to be all in. I want you to call that number right now and let that person talk with you and pray with you. They'll lead you to Jesus. I also want to invite you, if you're in this audience today, we've got altar ministry people. These are people of faith up here, and they're loving people. They'll, they'll pray with you right now about anything, but especially if you want to give your heart to Christ. And if it's time for you to be all in and you just want to, find somebody to agree with you in prayer about that and say, I, I get it. I, I often pray this. I'll say, Lord, I, I don't know what you're going to ask me to do today, but my answer right now is already a yes. 
I'm just going to say yes to your will and ways even before you ask me if that's my heart. Maybe that's where you are today. You're willing to say yes. And whatever God asks of you. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, I just ask you now to work in our hearts today. Thank you for this good message. It's, it's piercing. And it's arresting. And it's encouraging too. We want to respond appropriately. We respond, want to respond in faith. We want to respond in believing. We want to respond by saying yes to you. As we sing now, for those who need to step forward for prayer, for those who need to make that phone call, or we just, maybe in our seat, we make a, a recommitment to be all in. We pray that you'd help us to do it in these moments of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Julia, lead us for a couple of verses there. I don't want to miss the beauty of heaven all around me. The power and your mercy, the greatness of your love. I don't want to lose the wonder of being in your presence. Knowing such a friendship to be with you, my God, and everything I am, God, I throw into your hands, and I just want my life to ever be entwined with you. To your heart, and I just want my soul to ever stand in all of you. Tether to your heart, oh, tether to your heart. What could I desire? There's nothing better than living in your love. 
Father God, I ask you to send us out today to be the church of the living God. And we want to fashion our lives in accordance to your will and good pleasure. It's a joy to serve you, and we want to find a greater joy in how we do it and how we approach this world and how we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We purpose in our hearts today to be all in, to be there for you, to continue to labor in the kingdom of God, and to see you work in our lives. It's not just for our own good, but it's for your glory. We ask that you take us and use us to bring somebody to Christ this week. If, even if we just plant a seed, maybe we water where somebody else has planted but use us. Help us to open our mouth and share the love of Jesus with someone else. Thank you for this day we've had together. Praise you in Jesus' name. Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. You're dismissed. Thank you. You can go. Receptacles in the back if you'd like to leave love offering for Sean and